0: Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.
1: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with Sup China. Subscribe to SubChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, regular columns, and a fast-growing library of videos and podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region, to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you, as always, from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Unfortunately, Jeremy Goldcorn has choir practice. No, I think tonight is his his quilting group, so he's unable to join. I wasn't aware of that. He just told me. But uh, he, he sends his greetings. Besides, he wouldn't fit in here. Today's show is for people with alliteral names only. Our guests, Stephanie Studer and Alec Ash, both of whom we will introduce momentarily, and of course me. Anyway, Jeremy wouldn't have fit here, so it's just as well that he has quilting group. China's youth, its its post nineties or Joling Ho, as they're known in China, are a fascinating bundle of contradictions or apparent ones anyway. They are more individualistic, but also more publicly or civically minded, more green, more apt to volunteer, more apt to engage in charitable acts. They're more patriotic or nationalistic, if you like, but also in many ways more cosmopolitan and generally more socially progressive. Today we're going to try and unpack all of this and get a picture of who China's post-90s, people in their 20s really are, and uh, people in the the post-80s group, the uh, people who are currently in their 30s, who are the subject of a book by one of our guests, Alec. So a recent issue of The Economist, though, included uh, an excellent, very insightful special report on China's youth. I might not love the thing's title, Generation Xi. I suspect that the author was not responsible for it. Uh, but I think it is also probably selected more for the visual pun on you know Gen X than for any assertion that they're politically aligned with the General Secretary. But the package is just great. Its author is Stephanie Studer, Beijing-based China correspondent for The Economist. We are delighted she could join. Welcome, Stephanie.
2: Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks for having me on.
1: My pleasure. Also joining us is our old friend Alec Ash, whose book Wish Lanterns, which we spoke with him about some years ago for this program has now been republished or was republished last year with a new preface, a new forward, a new afterward, I think, uh, and, and a new title for the U.S. market where it's going to be called something
0: not as good as <laughs> Wish Lanterns. What's it called now? Um, they're calling it China's New Youth, presumably, uh, in the hope of uh, uh, being a bit more on the nose. Uh, like too
1: damned on the nose. Uh, wish Lanterns was such a great title. Anyway, uh, that's, that's, it's just for you know to suit local market conditions.
0: <laughs> ah, the Wish Lanterns are still in there.
1: Anyway, Alec is joining us from Dali in Yunnan province, where he's now writing about urban refugees fleeing the huge coastal cities. Such as myself. (laughs) Yeah, the dropout
0: and smoke weed and other pursuits. Alec Ash, welcome back to Seneca. Thank you, Kaiser, for having me on again. And uh, I'm wishing Jeremy good luck with his presumably China-themed quilting. (laughs) All right. Um, Stephanie, maybe
1: we can start by talking about uh, how Chinese people actually classify the different generations. You know, here in the U.S. and the West more broadly, we speak of, you know, the greatest generation and the silent generation and baby boomers and Gen X, that's me, uh, millennials and Gen Z. But that's obviously not how it works in China. And the Chinese system doesn't map quite perfectly onto the Western one either. Uh, so how, how does it work? And would you say there are analogous age cohorts in China?
2: Yeah, what I found really interesting is that we speak, for instance, of millennials in the West. But if you were to apply that definition strictly by the years, that would involve three, perhaps four generations in China as they're known (laughs) here. So I think the best known definitions of generations, they change every decade in China. But, you know, I've heard people speak of generations changing, you know, every five years um, yeah. sometimes even every three. And what's interesting is, I suppose, like in the West too, I mean, people really identify with their generation. And I think this is particularly strong for the post-80s, the Ho that Alec uh, wrote about in his book, and uh, the Joling Ho that I looked at, the post-90s. But I think probably you could go back to the post-70s. And if you're kind of looking for ways to define each decade, I think... They were probably most marked by the sort of the, the post-Mao era, the death of Mao in 76. Right. Um, then you've got the uh, the Ho, which was really about, you know, China's reform and opening up in the 80s. And then the Ho that, that I look at in, in the report. But interestingly, when you speak to people, you know, do you consider yourself part of this generation? There are no kind of clear-cut distinctions. You know, I mean, somebody born in in '91, might feel like they're actually a Baling ho.
1: Right, right. right. So
2: um, there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of fluidity in that.
0: I mean, I was born in the '60s, but I feel like I'm a Baling ho. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and whenever I go on TikTok, I feel like an ancient old fogey. Yeah. Uh, well, you've dressed like one for a while.
2: <laughs> Dali's made it worse.
0: <laughs> right, right, right.
1: So. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think that, that it makes sense that generations are getting shorter and shorter. I've always thought that generations are pretty much defined, at least you know, in, in modern society, by you know, the, the cultural input you got during your formative age, right? And as that's changed faster, necessarily, generations have gotten shorter, right? That just sort of makes sense. Alec, when I read your book, and another book that came out not long before yours, Eric Fish's uh, China's Millennials, I, I was struck to some extent by similarities in the ways that American millennials and China's post-80s are spoken of, not necessarily by members of these cohorts themselves, but by people of other generations talking about them. And I think, Stephanie, it's true to some extent of the language that I hear about, around Gen Z in the States, mapping kind of onto the post-90s in China, you know, that they're totally digital, that they're relatively woke, that they're pampered and coddled, they're not inured to hardships, all the critical things, right? Uh is, is this something that you've seen? Um, is there anything at all to those comparisons?
0: Absolutely, I think often I felt that there are better and uh, more intriguing comparisons to be drawn between the people of the same age uh, across different locations and countries than there are between two different generations in China because as you both alluded to, mm. we, are, we are so shaped by our environments uh, as we grow up. Um, and so perhaps Generation Z in uh, America and China have a lot more in common than they think, and perhaps even more than the Ba Ho and the Joling Ho uh, in China. Um, huh. I don't know what Stephanie thinks. That makes a lot of sense to me, Stephanie.
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly, Kaiser, what you're saying about just the impact of the digital world on these generations. I mean, <laughs> what Alec was alluding to with not understanding TikTok, um, I feel the <laughs> same. And what's interesting is actually, probably, you know, also just a difference of three or five years. I see that with my younger brother as well. Um, he's only two and a half years younger than me. And, you know, you just grow up with the pace of change, which has been extraordinary in China. But technologically, I think it's, it's also very rapid, you know, new apps coming out all the time. And I think we see that exactly the same phenomenon happening in China as well.
0: And the other thing that I think is hugely formative for a generation is who their parents are. Uh, and so the oh, generation yeah, yeah, sure. who are the parents of this current generation form generation Z or the Zio Ling Ho or the Ling Ling Ho in China. So for those people who are uh, say, leaving high school today, uh, their parents' generation uh, you know, are those born in the '70s um, and so on. Um, whereas those of the cohort I was writing about, their parents grew up in the 60s and so on, uh, and perhaps remember more of the uh, the hard times and poverty and political movements and so on. So the, uh, the values that they've been given by their parents sort of... The, the, the generation gaps every five years sort of roll over into each other um, with the values that the parents impart on each other. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see who the the current very young Chinese are, grow up to be, who have been taught by the Ba Ho and the Jiu Ling Ho, who often are rejecting uh, more traditional models of education, rejecting some of the sort of development first, uh, you know, high wage, move to the city at any cost kind of values that their parents, I think, inculcated those of our generation in China with today. Stephanie, when you talk about how among the post-90s, social
1: liberalism is surging in parallel, though, with increasing nationalism with support for the state and for the party, that makes it, I think, difficult for a lot of Westerners to get their heads around this generation. Uh, how do you square this when you're talking to your Western interlocutors? Is this just some Western conceit that the two are somehow fundamentally in- incompatible the way that we always thought that, say, capitalism and democracy were not supposed to be able to be separable? Or is should this surprise us, in other words?
2: I think it, I mean, it should in some ways. I was certainly struck by it. When you think about, for instance, Russia's youth, there, I think that the two go more closely hand in hand in some, in terms of social conservatism and nationalism. And you see that those are, I think, the two dominant forces. So then when I looked at China and I compared the same age group, I was I was quite struck by that. But I think within the Chinese context, though, it's perhaps not all that surprising. And and I guess we'll get into discussions of, you know, what the nationalism actually means, you know, how much of it is heartfelt, how much of it is performative patriotism. And similarly, you know, when you have fewer outlets to express yourself because of censorship, well, it might be that you kind of find the ones where you can say what you believe in. And sometimes that will be nationalism, but sometimes it will be feminism or LGBT rights. And so I right. think that, you know, this young generation is quite skillful at finding channels through which it can kind of make its its voice heard.
1: That's really interesting. And then, yeah, I, I want to spend some time drilling down into that. One assertion that, that I have heard is that a shibboleth that seems to mark the post-80s versus the post-90s is the use of English names for Chinese people that while a lot of post-70s and especially post-80s people still sort of adopted, you know, you had your, you know, uh, Rebecca's and your Vivian's and, and your, you know. But it seems a, a lot of people have told me that it's quite rare now for people in the 90s and they're, they're proud of using, even in English-speaking contexts, their Chinese names. Is that something you've noticed at all? Alec, or uh,
0: I, I hadn't really thought about it that much until you mentioned it, but as, as soon as you did it, it rang true anecdotally for me here in China. And I think it connects to perhaps a larger point we might make about the differences between the post-80s and the post-90s, uh, artificial difference as it is, that I think that the new younger lot, uh, I, I think are generally less enthralled to the West. I, I seem to remember right. when I first came to China which was in 2008, there was, everyone wanted to go to study in America. Everyone was watching uh, American shows, you know, Prison Break or whatever it was. And uh, today, I think, you know, and perhaps this connects to the point that we're making about nationalism, I, th- I think that confidence is the better word to use for nationalism, which is such a, a particular thing with such negative connotations and of course exists, but I think right. on a larger scale that uh, young Chinese today, I feel they're more confident uh, in their culture. There are more Chinese products, more Chinese cultural products, entertainment products and so on for them to uh, consume rather than the West and America in particular being of the gold standard. I think with that has also come a suspicion of uh, liberalism and uh, Western values, which perhaps explains some of the uh, the cognitive uh, dissonance around, around uh, socially liberal Chinese mm. being quite pro-state and just less generally being less um, Enamored and totally enthralled with the West. Uh, I was on a I was on a clubhouse chat the other day Which was a group of uh, Liu Xiexeng, a, a group of students abroad talking about their experiences And it was basically a litany of complaints about studying in America and wow. I just thought back to what my friends were uh, Telling me about their dreams of going to America uh, 10 15 years ago, and it, it really feels like a different world indeed. I have a 17 year old daughter Uh, who spent the first 12 years of her
1: life in China and came to the United States and was entirely immune to the attractions of American popular culture. When she consumes non-Chinese culture at all, it's Korean or Japanese. It's the sort of the near abroad for China. Uh, Mm. It's really interesting. I I think confidence is a good way of of talking about it. There's
0: also... this is going to be a, a newsflash for both of you, but there's also quite a lot of racism in America uh, against Asians. <laughs> um, I seem to remember there was a story about Asian American students in some university or other posting notices on their doors saying my name is this and this yeah, in Chinese said, yeah. and this is what it means. Do you remember that? At uh, Columbia. Was, I think it was at Columbia. Right, which is pretty cool. Or one or
1: is it NYU or Columbia? I can't remember. That was because, yeah, because of racist incidents. Uh, that was great. And they, they made a video series out of mm. that. They, they, they you know, talked about their names. And it was, yeah, it was very touching. Um, uh, that's that's fantastic. And that's one of the, the times where I noticed how, how proud people were of actually using their names in Pinyin, even in in an American context, even when they were quite fluent English speakers. They seem to have resisted this whole adopt, you know, Robert or I'm um, Steve, you know.
2: In fact, just while we're on the topic, there's a fascinating study um, that was done last year at um, elite American universities that found that students who had been exposed to racist taunts were um, in general more likely to show support political support for China's regime um, so you know this this is there is there is evidence that this is having a direct impact on you know how they view, their own country, of course, China, how they view the CCP. Um, so that's something to, to keep an eye on.
1: That was Yiching Shu and Jennifer Pan, right?
2: Yes, exactly. Stanford University. Yeah, no,
1: that, um, it's a. They do fantastic work, both of them. Uh, we've had Jennifer on the show before. Actually, you talk a little bit about another uh, piece of research that, that Jennifer was involved in, I, I believe in, I think she shows up a couple of times uh, in your in, in your her, her
2: research is just so good.
1: <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um I think I don't know if you've heard the show, but we talked to her about the one uh, where it talks about how the party propagandists are skillful now at using clickbait yes. in in, uh, in in ads. Alec, um, we talked about the earlier edition of your book when it was still titled "Wish Lanterns," uh, still a better name. Uh, could you talk about what's new in in the book? I mean, there's a, Caroline. Can has a, a foreword for it. Is that that's you? right?
0: Caroline did a a, a lovely foreword, very kindly. It's the U.S. Uh, paperback re-release. They retitled it "China's New Youth." So I. I've she must be post 80s though, because she uses an English name. <laughs> <laughs> she is, yes. Uh, but she would fit in
1: here because it's alliteral, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> only alliteration, only alliteration. Uh, I did a new preface for it, uh, focusing mostly on the historical context of the generation, uh, and also an afterword in which I catch up on the lives of the six characters that I follow inside it. Um, and, you know, the, the book was about this very particular. Sliver generation of uh, of people born between nineteen eighty five and nineteen ninety, so it's it's really a snapshot of uh, that youth in transition. So it's been very interesting to see and to think about what's new and what's changed.
1: So I, I don't remember all of them well. I, I certainly remember the broad brush uh, of of these individual characters, the six of them. Could you pick a couple and kind of catch us up? Give us a quick recap of you know some of the more interesting developments in their lives since you published the book.
0: Sure, happily. Uh, well, uh, Lucifer um, to pick one English name, <laughs> um, that's perhaps the most memorable. Uh, he was an aspiring uh, superstar, and he is uh, still in Beijing, although he's been moving around a lot. He, uh, since the events of the book finished, he launched a new rap career as uh, Little Yen because uh, his Chinese name is Li Yen. Get it? He also made a. Appearance on uh, Yuewei de Xiatian, the uh, that summer of the bands, the big band uh, mm-hmm, show mm-hmm. on Aichi, uh, which uh, didn't go quite as well as he planned. Um, uh, Mia, who was on the on the cover of the book, is uh, going from mm-hmm. strength to strength in Shanghai, uh, and she's uh, uh, started being a social media influencer. Oh, really? So of a sort of TikTok generation in China. I, I did notice in a lot of the characters I followed since I completed the book in 2016. There's been a trend of many of them leaving the city. Snail is a a migrant who moved to Beijing, and he he went back to Anhui, his home province, to be near his hometown where he could afford property and be near family, uh, which is not an uncommon trend. Uh, Fred was also looking to get out of the the city, which she finds stifling in its academic atmosphere. So she was in Hainan for a long stretch, and then uh, Dahai and Xiaoxiao, were in uh, Xinjiang and then moved to Hangzhou. And uh, they, just, they just visited me in Dali the other month, actually, over Chinese New Year. And, uh, you know, they would love to move here as well. So I do find it interesting that of the people I followed who are, who are all urban young Chinese, and, and uh, the stories that I told of them was them trying to move to the city and make it, you know, right. find, find jobs, find a partner and everything in the city. And now I feel that their stories perhaps reflect... Uh, another broader generational trend, which is young Chinese looking for something, something a bit more. That's something that you are writing your your new book on. But there's
1: also a major theme in Stephanie's special report. Uh, you wrote on this, Stephanie. You talked about Li, Li Ziqi, uh, the amazingly talented woman who's probably the best known representative of this. This called mm-hmm. "Fanjiangtian," this uh, return to the countryside uh, of of the youth, the youth who are returning to the countryside. How, how impactful was she? Uh, maybe we could we could do a little quick potted uh, description of of who she is, and then talk about you know her influence and whether the people who you spoke to uh, see her as some kind of an inspiration.
2: Mm. Yeah, uh, Lisa Chi is definitely the best known um, live streamer from the countryside. Um, her 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 uh, videos are um, you know, carefully edited, but they're meant to show a sort of, um, unvarnished country life to urbanites in need, I think of some sort of, yeah, spiritual balm, maybe Mm. a a break from, from the, the the toil of the city. So I, I think, you know, that's what she does, whether it's, you know, she goes off and, and picks wild herbs or she grows watermelons, um, um she shows how to cook um Sichuanese dishes. I think that her appeal has really been for, yeah, a middle class that feels like it it needs to, to go out, maybe see something different, maybe get off the the treadmill. I suspect that it has encouraged some to go and do kind of rustic retreats. <laughs> You know, rather than kind of going to, I don't know, a big resort in Hainan, they might instead choose to find, you know, a cute village in Anhui or, you know, perhaps go to Dali. Um, And uh, but whether or not they stay, you know, is another is another question. Um, I think that those who grew up in the countryside went to the city in search of a different life. I think they're sort of driven by slightly different imperatives, and, and that's the sort of retreat that I found so interesting, or, or the, the, re, the reverse flow, that some are realizing that actually maybe life in the country isn't so bad these days. It, it It's just, you know, a more inviting place to be.
1: How is it, Alec? You're doing it. Um, you know, <laughs> you've left the bustle and bustle of Beijing. You're living in Dali. Um, I mean, it's not bad. Is it the rural idol uh, that you you, you imagined it was going to
0: be? I, I certainly enjoy it, living uh, close <laughs> to the mountain and uh, running with my dog. I, I do feel that, uh, I, as we were saying, generations are so shaped by their environments and by their parents. And so for the uh, older generation who grew up uh, knowing China when it was poor, they, they, they really were seeking development, high wages, city moving to Beijing, Uh, and Shanghai and Guangdong, that was the gold standard um, because of what they experienced in their childhoods. And so now this urban young generation, they grew up knowing China is developed and rich and powerful, that's what they're used to. Um, They've they've been surrounded by development. Um, So for some of them, they are are becoming disillusioned with uh, the trappings of development, uh, seeking more than that. Um, Some in leaving the city, some in personal meanings or faith. Uh, some in this uh, paradoxical sort of renaissance of, uh, of socialism and socialist values in in an in <laughs> ostensibly socialist country where actually it's capitalism run wild that, that led to this youth going back to the socialist roots that 100 years ago originated the capitalist mainstream today, like a sort of Ouroboros devouring its own tail. Um, so I find it fascinating to see... Um, all of these changes which I think took 100 or 200 years, maybe a century in America uh, and the West to come to China in the space of just a few decades uh, with the sort of backs of land, right? You know, upstate New York, uh, place in Provence. It's, it's, it's similar to that in a Chinese context. Yeah, yeah. Leads that she pushes a certain aesthetic that I think maybe isn't always
1: reflected in the reality. But the fact is, uh, life in the countryside has gotten a whole lot easier. There are a lot of amenities, and Stephanie, this is something you write about in in the report uh, about how e-commerce has transformed it. How it isn't really so bad now uh, in in a lot of these county towns and uh, you know fourth or fifth tier cities. And uh, one statistic that really jumped out at me was that in the decade to 2019, the proportion of rural migrants. Under the age of 30 living away from the hometown, their hometowns has almost halved. That is astonishing to me. Do you attribute this to the fading allure of the big cities, to demographic trends, the one child policy, or to what? What, what is keeping more rural people in, in the, in the villages and the small, small towns?
2: Yeah, I mean, so what you said about the way county seats have been transformed. I mean, I think that has made a huge difference. If you grew up if you were born in a in a in a in a dusty small village when, you know, I don't know, a time when internet was still glitchy and e-commerce, you know, had not taken off, then there wasn't really much keeping you there. It was it was just natural that you would go and seek, you know, a life either in the in the booming um, factory towns, or you know, if you were if you were lucky enough, you could try to get to a first tier city. But now, I think you know, you have high speed rail links that make travel so much easier. There's, it, in some ways, the city and the country have been brought you know closer together. I think in in the popular imagination as well, but f- physically too. And the the fact that e commerce has taken off has given um, young people this job possibility but also able to stay closer to home. So I think you know there's a there's a sense that life in the city is is tough, returns on education are effectively falling and so you know if you can if you can do something while staying close to your family and if you know if you're if you can kind of get the goods that that you aspire to having um you know, while staying closer to home, then then why not? And um, I think that's right. that might be what's driving a lot of it. I mean, the other thing, of course, is that, you know, the the factories that were on the the East Coast are moving inland. So there's a sort of a push pull happening. I mean, I think mm-hmm. some of it is by choice. But, you know, in some cases, um, um, migrant workers are simply following the factories inland, and that, that may or may not suit them. But as labor costs are rising there, there's there's just a yeah there's a there's a there's a move uh, inwards
1: and there's a change happening even among educated urbanites who are disillusioned with 996 work culture and who are finding that they're on the treadmill running just to stay where they are and not having a whole lot to show for it right talk about this there's there's a word that's widely discussed about how young people are uh, feel. I mean, it's it's the English uh, translation of it is involution. In Chinese, it's neijuan. So what does that mean, Stephanie? And how does that manifest itself in, in Chinese sort of economic life?
2: Yeah, neijuan is actually a pretty obscure agricultural term, which means there's more input, but you're not increasing the output, essentially. Mm. And so I think this sense is now quite widespread, the idea that, you know, you're going through China's like grueling education system, you're putting in the hours and then you know you're you're getting a job it's it's a white collar job but you know is it is it really what you want to do? Is it giving you you know a sense of purpose? I mean I think what's changing also yes competition is is fierce and, and it's growing. but I think also young people just feel like they want more from a job and uh, they you know they want to they want to feel like it, it gives them a sense of purpose. So I think perhaps expectations are, are changing. And that's why terms like this are, are, are coming about. And yeah, you know, the, the working hours, are as you said, you know, nine, nine, six, working from nine till nine, six days a week. I mean, you know, it's just it's not sustainable. And I think people realize that they want a kind of work life balance.
1: At one level, it sounds to me like China's younger generation are, you know, more or less following the same trajectory of young people in many parts of the developed world, you know, getting married later wanting smaller families, changing jobs more often, looking for more personal fulfillment uh, instead of just wanting the material trappings of success, maybe more okay with gig economy work and and all that. Where do you think, aside from their propensity toward more nationalism, which we'll talk about, do they really differ that much from their closest counterparts in the West? I think let's talk about first, Alec, maybe you can talk about the post-80s and then Stephanie can talk about the post nineties. And uh, are there important areas besides, as I said, uh, p- political ones, where you think there's something particularly Chinese about this? The the, the conditions in China have, have have have
0: really formed them. Sure, I mean my my opinion on this is that um, it's the same humanity in different environments. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. young people will be young people anywhere, and we'll find all of those commonalities. Yet in China the environment is so particular, and I think there's a couple of things which then elicit differences. I think that given we've been talking about these uh, trends and so on, which are urban trends and elite trends, it's you know important to issue the regular caveat that there's this you know huge gulf between right. city and right. country. And it's really two countries in one now, and you know a lot of my young neighbours uh, in in the village I live in, you know they all want to go to the nearest big city. Um, and uh, develop in, in a way which was much more familiar, perhaps, to their parents' generation. Uh, that's the expectations. Yet, I think, uh, it's elites which drive the direction of the country. So it's very uh, important to, to notice the trend and, and what it says about China more broadly. So uh, back to the question, I think, well, I think that is one particular thing about China, mm-hmm. that you have this country-city uh, gulf. Um, I think another is that... Uh, just society and work and education are, are so much more competitive here than I feel that they are in, in many Western countries, competitive as they are there as well. So I think there are uh, pressures to succeed and, and get ahead in, in this kind of zero-sum game, uh, which perhaps also answers the political question of why they perhaps uh, aren't so uh, engaged um, uh, or are happy to go along with the system, uh, partly because they can't change anything and partly because they really just do have other concerns Uh, on their mind. And I feel like those differences were perhaps slightly more marked in the post 80s than they are in the post 90s. Now that sort of wealth gaps are closing and so on. And a lot of people do have more disposable income and uh, disposable time on their hands. So So there's
1: even more convergence with their counterparts abroad in the developed world as we move forward in time.
0: Yes. uh, And also know in that I think the information ecosystem has become uh, a bit more closed in China. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel that the the internet in China has become, uh, um, you know, rebelliously more of an intranet as China is successfully pinning jello to the wall, et etc. et cetera, in certain yeah, here. Yeah, I will debate you on that, no. <laughs> That's uh, for and, sure. and so that they are, I think, used to an information so service sort of societal Ecosystem, uh, and then there's also the information ecosystem, where I think they are increasingly exposed to, um, you know, a, a particular culture and information, and including uh, political opinions around them, um, which which naturally shapes their opinions, just as we are shaped by our own information ecosystems yeah, here. Well, here in the United States, I depressingly have to, you know, to see how.
1: The willingness to avail yourselves of a perfectly free set of information uh, is pretty low among Americans. I mean, even though you know your your average Fox TV viewer, Breitbart reading viewer, they could you know it's not it's not like the other information is is censored or blocked to them, right? or indeed yeah, NPR listeners <laughs> the other way, right, right, right. or indeed yeah, NPR listeners. Um, Stephanie, do you agree? Do you think that that, that there's sort of as we move from one generation to the next, there's even a kind of uh, more similarity. Again, let's let's take this political piece out because I still want to mm-hmm. save that to talk about next. But would you say that uh, in terms of uh, their economic life, their propensity to save versus spend, their propensity to um, you know push marriage and other decisions further down and have a smaller family, they, they do seem awful, awfully like the Western counterparts more and more. Huh?
2: Yeah, I see. I see lots of similarities. You know, I, I came out of the reporting for this thinking, like, wow, this. You know, there's certainly more that that unites us than 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 divides mm-hmm. us. Um, I'm a I'm a baling Ho, but you know, in may, right at the tail end. So in in many ways, you know, a, a lot of what they said rang rang true for me. This notion of kind of defying social conventions, choosing to marry later, in some cases choosing not to marry at all, uh, perhaps even not to have children. You know, the, the birth rate now is the lowest it's been for almost two decades in China. So, uh, you know, and then trends. I mean, it's. It, I completely agree with Alec, this idea that, you know, as the, the sort of information ecosystem is, is becoming more rigid and, and more insular as censorship has been stepped up. And that obviously has an impact. Um, But something that really struck me from the reporting is how many young people are using VPNs. And it's probably not to kind of look into what really happened on Tiananmen Square in 1989. But they, you know, they want to get onto Instagram, they want to see what what Trump is saying on Twitter, um, before he was silenced. So you know, or you know, if they have a if they have a small business, they want to they want to keep up with kind of Western design trends or fashions. Or so I think that that is still happening. You know, I'd kind of had the assumption for a while that the number of people who would use a VPN was just vanishingly small. But then when I asked, you know, have you ever used one? Or, or I don't know, have you ever been on Twitter? They were like, yeah, you know, a couple of times. And. So I found that kind of huh. kind of heartening. Um, I think it'd be, it'd be, I'd love to see the numbers
0: on that. Uh, you know, I was just yeah, talking to too. someone to uh, just yesterday who was telling me that he thought that he didn't want to use a VPN because he thought it was dangerous. You know, which was the first time I'd really heard that idea expressed. Um, so it'd be fascinating to see if if numbers of if VPN usage in China is increasing or declining.
2: I don't think there are any, unfortunately. I mean, I, I've looked. Yeah, yeah I think, yeah. and yeah, this so is far. really just anecdotal, right? Just from speaking to, I don't know, fifty young people or whatever. Um, but. The
1: last one I'm aware of was 2011 by the Berkman Institute, and it was showed. I talked to them then, and it was three percent, but they thought that that was a, a generous estimate, and their per, wow. their private estimate was more like only one and a half percent. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was depressing. Though I'm sure that it's much higher than that, just anecdotally. I know. I, I do talk to a lot of people who maybe have more of an incentive to to see you know the internet outside of China, but I still think it's it's significantly higher than it was you know ten years ago. Um, one of the other things that you, you talk about is you know and we we flicked at this earlier um, the relatively socially progressive tendencies now. I, I see it. I look at a lot of popular culture that my 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 daughter watches and. It's very clear. There's a lot of, of even like sort of historical costume dramas with really heavy homoerotic themes in it. Um, there's an openness to, uh, to LGBTQ culture that is really heartening to me uh, as somebody who you know who embraces the rainbow. Right. I I love uh, that I'm seeing this happen, and again, I I think that it's it's common to young people. In Europe, in the United States, and and China, and elsewhere, but uh, it rubs up against an official culture that still frowns on this. how How does that square with their uh, increasingly uh, nationalistic or patriotic commitments?
2: Yeah, I think that it, there's a there's a capacity to see the two things as being in kind of separate worlds. I mean, you have those kind of at the at the far end, uh, pushing for, you know, feminist rights who are part of, of of NGOs, grassroots organizations, or, you know, LGBT campaigners, I met some in, in Chengdu, which has remained up until now a little bit of a haven for them. And, you know, they, they have no good things to say about about the party and the regime. Um, right. And they will be, you know, quite vocal about it. They will speak to you off the record, but um, they're sort of, uh, that's quite clear. But then I think you've got the vast majority of others who are, are quite happy to kind of, you know, let the party do its thing. After all, you know, they feel like it has brought them a lot. You know, it has certainly in the, in the past year as well, you know, looking at the way that China has handled the pandemic versus, you know, Western countries and the economy is still running. It's the only large economy to have actually grown last year. So I think increasingly there's this sense that, well, actually, you know, the party's, the party's pretty good. The party's not that bad. And we're able to kind of get on with our lives. And, you know, there's still these kind of, there's this space to sort of push things that, that are important to me, um, whether that's, you know, environmental rights or, um, or, or, or feminist rights. So uh, it's, 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 there's a strange tension there for sure. But I think that as long as they're sort of, they're, they're allowed to do things in those kind of politically safe areas, um, there will be a sense that, you know, you can have, you can have a bit of an impact on society, even if it's, even if it's small, you can kind of change Mm. things at the grassroots, even as, even as the government is imposing stuff at the top.
1: So in spite of the fact that there are some quite well-known activists, the Feminist Five, a lot of you know, well-known L- LGBTQ activists, uh, people uh, who are, are pushing in a lot of things, the knock that we too often hear about both of these generations, the post-80s and post-90s, is that they lack the, the uh, ideals and the courage of bygone generations to protest. They, they don't have that uh, thirst for having a louder political voice. Whether or not that's fair, how how does the current generation, do you think, measure up to, you know, these lionized generations, the May 4th generation that took to the streets of Beijing in 1919, or uh, the generation that, that uh, protested in Tiananmen in,
0: in 89? Just to tail end on on, on Stephanie's uh, uh, comments, which I totally agree with, uh, I, I feel like, yes, there is this tension between, I think, the two tectonic plates of a, I, I think... Socially progressive uh, and and liberal generation, uh, even incrementally so, and what I see is a very much socially and politically regressive uh, government and regime, which I think is looking at the history of the USSR in the 80s and 90s and and really trying to clamp down on uh, civil society and its progressive elements. Uh, and those those tectonic plates are going in in opposite directions, uh, which which some seismologists uh, might see as a, as a warning sign. Although perhaps it's an imperfect metaphor. Um, but then I I don't think that there needs to be a cognitive dissonance between a young Chinese person who uh, you know is pro LGBT maybe, you know, willing to fight for personal sort of activist causes or anything, yet is also patriotic and behind the state. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a square in a circle. And then to loop back to your question about the historical legacy and the thread, you know, youth uh, activism in in China historically has always been nationalistic. And the May 4th movement was a nationalistic movement. Uh, It was anti-Japanese. Ditto in 1895 um also anti-Japanese ditto in the cultural revolution um ditto really in in 78 and 86 and 87 and 89 um they're sort of patriotic movements um and so the uh, patriotism of of young people today in china is a it's nothing new uh, and b you could you could even think of it as a continuation uh, of that legacy then there's a sort of and, and as i said before i i, th- I find that uh Nationalism is a a freighted word and and a word to apply to a particular and quite large cohort of young Chinese. It's a, I think it's an extremist uh, philosophy, really. It's a philosophy which identifies, which connects your identity with the identity of your nation state above everything else. uh, A very popular extremist philosophy. But but if we talk about it in terms of uh, patriotism and uh, confidence uh, and pride in your nation... That's certainly nothing new and not really anything different to, to you know, um, Americans who are sort of America number one. As or, or an instinct to, to defend it when it's perceived to be under threat. Yeah, I
1: mean, I, I think there's this healthy form of nationalism then. So you were saying that you don't see there's a, there's
0: necessarily any contradiction between them? Yes, I don't think so. I think that the, the confidence to, as Stephanie said, perhaps promote personal causes is not necessarily running counter to being behind your state because it's all, I think, markers of this rising confidence. You know, we were talking a little about the difference between the post-80s and the post-90s and uh, sort of my book and Stephanie's report, respectively. And I felt like for the lot I was talking about, a word which was thrown around a lot was zibei, uh, a sort of self-deprecation. Um, mm. I think yeah. it was one of those... Do you remember Kaiser? There used to be those internet word of the years in the north, yeah. and, and I think Zabe was the internet kind of word of the year in in, in the late two thousands or something. Now it's very much sin I think um, I was ah, talking uh, to. I'll, I'll, I'll give an anecdotal example. I was talking to a hippie, hippie in Dali the other day. You know, the full hemp outfit and uh, <laughs> um, plant plant based activities that uh, that uh, Kaiser was alluding to, and tarot readings and all. Uh, but then she was also very aggressively pro-China and really um, biting my ear off about it, uh, about how great China's response to COVID has been. Um, and then the next time I saw her, she uh, asked me if I'd changed my mind about China, even though I, I don't remember expressing an opinion. And, uh, and I kind of <laughs> thought, weren't, 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 you know, and she's this hippie who's dropped out of her system. And I thought, weren't, weren't hippies meant to be against? The government. Um, so I I I think that you can be both socially liberal and uh, you know proud of your country at the same time. Tw- twenty years
1: ago, uh, almost to the day, twenty years ago, right in the aftermath of the EP three spy plane incident, I wrote an essay uh, about this this conundrum that we often encountered, where we'd meet these seemingly very Westernized cosmopolitan Chinese who would be very good friends of ours who seem to have, uh, to share our values in so many ways and admiration for Western liberal democracy in- included. And you would think you were sort of safe to bring up certain topics like Tibet or Taiwan and out would roar this kind of, you know, uh, angry nationalist uh, that would not bite your face off. <laughs> it was kind of, you know, it was. Well,
0: you, it, you got the uh, blunt end of that stick after Belgrade. Oh, many times.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've I've had it many times, and I mean it. It, it shouldn't surprised me, right? I mean, I think that if you think about, and I'm Alec, you're exactly right. You know that that there were always, even in the most ostensibly liberal moments of China, the May Fourth generation that was calling for you know science and democracy, it was still. Uh, those were, for the most part, regarded as means, liberal means to uh, what were essentially ends of, you know, jiu national salvation, <laughs> saving T'yong. the country. In the, yeah, yeah, a lot of that, right, ti-yong stuff, it doesn't ever really go away, and I think we still see it today. Stephanie, um, you talked to some academics uh, who uh, look at the way that online discussion is shaped by the Chinese government. We talked just a little bit about Jennifer Pan, who I also interviewed for this program and the use of clickbait headlines. Uh, you talked about some of the other really quite subtle ways that conversations are, are steered or uh, conversations are stymied by state actors and um, how that has affected the way that, that this generation you're looking at, the the post-90s, has, uh, you know, it, it, it's shaped the discourse, right? What are some of those ways that you talked about?
2: Yeah, I think it has got a lot more subtle, um, the way that online discussion is is shaped and, um, and driven. I mean, just to take an example that's blowing up at the moment in China, um, in with Nam. the, absolutely the, co- the consumer boycotts. I mean, it's kind of all unraveling for, um, you know, big Western clothing brands here, um, and shoe brands. And, um, the interesting thing is that this is tied to pretty like pro forma due diligence statements that were made by some of these companies a year ago, and it was picked up. Um, um it seems by the communist youth league that that pumped this out and and it's worth noting by the way that that four in five students today in china are members of the of the communist youth league i mean you know this is that has more to do with the fact that it's kind of a it just makes sense to be part of it. It's kind of a CV booster, right. but you know, it has. You know, they have their own channels on on Weibo. Of course, um, they, they're getting a lot smarter at um, packaging stuff so that it's more appealing to this to this younger generation. And so you can imagine that if something like that gets pushed out, then suddenly you're going to have you know some some well placed popular pro party um, Weibo users, influencers who are going to follow that up. Um, so you've kind of, it's an interesting, you know, it's, it starts off, I think, not so not so organic. Um, I think that, you know, the, there are there are kind of, the, the government is shaping it at the outset. But then I think it takes on a life of its own. And I think that, you know, further downstream, a lot of that sentiment is very genuine. And there's a real yeah. sense that like, oh, you're not going to buy our Xinjiang cotton? We're, you know, we're not going to buy your Western products. And I think people are genuinely willing to take a hit. And frankly, you know, they have other brands to choose from now. You know, they're very proud to wear leaning shoes or, you know, other Chinese brands because they're just better than they ever were before.
1: Some people I talked to today were saying, I am aware that there's something terrible happening in Xinjiang. I understand that. But I see how this discourse has been weaponized uh, and, you know, used by the EU and by the United States in a way that wants to, you know, the the, the goal here is they don't they doubt the sincerity of the commitment to actual human rights they think that this is being you know used and so they're behind they're getting behind the h&m and other boycotts and yeah and so stephanie one of the other i think the most fascinating piece of research that you touched on was this one by huang haifeng uh that that showed how private versus public criticism of the leadership uh affects scores on patriotic education tests so it was that was really interesting i i i Maybe you could share the conclusions about, you know, young Chinese people uh, that you might draw from those findings. Uh, Maybe I can quickly say so. People who apparently who had private criticisms about the party and about patriotic education, but were publicly reticent about it, were the ones who tended to score highest on these tests of of your you know ability to master patriotic education is that is that correct
2: yeah absolutely i found that just a fascinating result i mean this idea that um you know those who are closest to the propaganda those who can kind of parrot it and recite it and who may come across to be kind of you know rabid nationalists it actually, you know, it may not tell the whole story. Um, and right. I, something that, 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 that struck me um, doing the research for this report and speaking to people is I sometimes came away from sitting down with a young person for two or three or four hours having a long interview and and not fully knowing whether what they had told me was, you know, truly what they believed when it came to, you know, talking about the party, even if we were speaking off the record. And I think that this younger generation has got so good at saying, you know, what is the socially acceptable thing to say? And I think it's almost kind of second nature to them in a way that I'm, I mean, Alec, you, you know, you'll have a much better sense of this, but in a way that I just don't think it was 10 years ago. And it becomes hard then to dissociate, you know, what are they actually feeling or thinking do they even care about this stuff? I mean, something that is often mentioned in relation to the Joling Ho is that they're apolitical. You know, they, they just don't, they don't really care about it. I mean, you know, it's possible that even those who are kind of banging the nationalist drum actually couldn't really care less, but they're like, oh, it's just easier to side with the loudest voice on this.
1: People are always asking me to try to explain their 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 quiescence. And maybe we can, uh, we can end with each of you weighing in on this question. Uh, people ask me, you know, why are young people of this generation uh, apparently not so interested in in politics? Is it they've been cowed, it's fear, or that they've been brainwashed, that they've been co-opted with, you know, the material blandishments of, 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 you know, contemporary society? Well, Stephanie, I know you make the very excellent point that they're increasingly confident both in themselves and in the fact that China can do better. I thought that was a really good way of putting it. Uh, And I think this is, as you, you say, a very powerful force. Uh, they've seen firsthand their own ability to actually affect change, and yet they don't seem to be that interested in involving themselves in politics. I still see a kind of disconnect there. So, Alec and Stephanie, both of you, maybe could weigh in on on what you think. What do they? Sure.
0: What what, what creates this phenomenon? Yeah, I think that was that's a really insightful comment from Stephanie, um, and uh, I noticed it as well uh, when I was doing the interviews. For my book, um, and it took a lot of time, I think, to uh, break through and develop trust, Um, I think that in China, especially people, are very quite good at knowing which way the wind is blowing because it's it's very important to know which way the wind is blowing because there can be some powerful winds. Uh, And perhaps more so today than 10 years ago, uh, that 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 wind can can really knock you over. So if you say something wrong, it can it can have real effects um, on your on your work and so on. So it's it's a sort of loyalty signalling that I've noticed has become expected today. The the, the greengrosser sign, if anyone's familiar with that image from Vaclav Havel's essay The Power of the Powerless, the idea that you have to display the sign. Um, saying workers of the world unite, or in this case, have to display that you are behind the state. It's not uh, good enough almost just to not um, be a dissident or criticise, which I thought was the case in the noughts. Um Now you have to actively display it, and I think people have kind of picked up on that. So um, you know that I think those these are important caveats. You know, and so we've been talking a lot about nationalism and patriotism and so on. Um, some people might have seen that uh, uh, recent survey by the uh, Harvard Kennedy School uh, Ash Center, I believe, no relation, where they yeah, yeah, yeah. talked to you know some some thirty thousand Chinese citizens over the last uh, fifteen years and uh, found uh, I think I think it was ninety three percent approval rating for Chinese policies and you know of course ninety three percent raises all sorts of eyebrows and 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 we ran a piece at LARB, sort of issuing all the caveats about it. Um, uh, And and I think that, you know, those two things could be true at the same time. Uh, And it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, I'm I'm spitballing now, but I feel that if you live in a society where you're expected to toe the official line, uh, and it's uh, very helpful for you to toe the official line, uh, often (coughs) that then becomes your genuine belief, I think. you know, a bit of pop psychology there maybe but the phenomenon um, where you force yourself to smile and you actually feel <laughs> joy right okay i'll, I'll try that
1: <laughs> yeah I, it's gotten me through some tough days <laughs> stephanie what do you last word to you on this
2: yeah I, I wanted to come back kaiser to your point about fear like to what extent is this kind of motivated by fear alec you know uh, touched on this as well The notion that you need to know which way the the wind is blowing because you worry that you know your life might otherwise be deeply affected by by kind of putting a foot wrong. It's I was interested in the Joling Ho for a a, a slightly academic reason, which is that they were all born after um, the protests in eighty nine, and so I wondered to what extent you know not having a generational memory of that made a difference and. What struck me is that actually there are there are two contradictory arguments about the kind of impact that might have this sort of relative amnesia. You know, on, on the one hand, not knowing that the that the party gunned down students in cold blood means that they might have um, a more rosy view of it, which might explain you know some of the kind of. the the more benign feelings towards the party Um, on the other hand the fact that you know that they don't know that that happened they don't have the kind of the fear fear perhaps that was instilled in earlier generations um, might uh, might one day kind of encourage them to 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 do the same again kind of unknowingly Um, so I I haven't come down on on one side but it, it shows to what extent this question is a tricky one
1: Stephanie, Alec, both of you, it's just so great to have you on. Uh, let me remind everybody that the special report that Stephanie authored, Generation Xi, is in the January 23rd issue of The Economist. I recommend it to anyone who's interested in China, as presumably all of our listeners are. Alec's book is out under the title China's New Youth, How the Young Generation is Shaping China's Future, with a foreword by Caroline Cott. Uh, let's move on Now to recommendations First a very quick reminder that The Seneca Podcast Is powered by SubChina. If you like the work We're doing with Seneca And the 10 other shows In our network Great shows like The China and Africa Podcast uh, China Stories New Voices Tech Buzz Strangers in China The best thing That you can do To support us Is to subscribe To SubChina. Access our daily Email newsletter You get your first Two months For just two bucks Two dollars So try it out We think you'll love it It really is the best thing That you can do To uh, keep current on major news coming out of China and you help us out in the the process. Under recommendations, Stephanie, kick us off. And then Alec, before you go, I I insist that you talk a little bit about uh, the China channel on uh, the LA Review of Books, which you've helmed for, for several years and is now coming very sadly to. Its end, but Stephanie, first to you.
2: I would like to recommend a jigsaw puzzle, which I'm oh. currently working on, um, and uh, it's it's a a puzzle of a pictorial map that I'm sure both of you are familiar with because it's the best known of Beijing um, in 1936 by. Oh, yeah, I have that
1: one. I have that print. Uh, you one have one. it cool.
2: um, yeah. by uh, Frank Dawn, who was a young mm-hmm. um, American military attaché who was stationed here in the 30s. And um I've realized I realized I have the print too actually, but was given the, the puzzle recently as a as a gift. And I realized that you know when you have so much detail on something like a map, you 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 don't really take the time to kind of look carefully at, at every bit of it. But with a puzzle, you're mm. kind of forced to do that. Because you have to look at every piece.
1: I love this. This is the best recommendation <laughs> that I've had
2: on a long um, time. So and I should say that the, the puzzle... Where do you get it? Yeah, the puzzle is from Beijing Postcards, and they do have uh, an online store. I'm um, buying it right now. It's uh, it, it's sort of intensely relaxing. I've a- already spent hours on it.
0: And then do you get to remove pieces like the Beijing City Wall uh, as it's uh, a trace for historical destruction?
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you could, Alex. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Oh, wow, I'm going to buy it right now. Oh, I'll wait until after the show's over. But are you, are you going to oh, move on great. to the South China Sea jigsaw puzzle with the, uh, the 9-9? <laughs> <laughs> I
2: don't think that's available yet.
1: <laughs> All right, Alec, you're up. And as I've asked, please, a few words, an encomium or whatever you wanted.
0: Sure. Um, well, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, the, the Los Angeles Review of Books China Channel was my uh, part-time editing gig over the last... Uh, almost four years, and it was enormous fun to edit, a real a real privilege to run some of the pieces on that. Uh, sustainable funding for media is difficult, um, and it was time to- Tell me about it. <laughs> close, time to close the gate. Um, so you know, thank you very much for the tribute, Kaiser, and indeed for the uh, run of our stories on China Stories that you kind yeah, of-
1: Yeah, I've gotten started. I, I read one by Sam Crane this morning. It'll be out tomorrow, and we'll run one or two every week for the next couple of months at least,
0: until we run out of really good ones. Uh, fantastic. Do you have a recommendation? Sure. I'm I'm going to recommend Dali, where I live, um, for its natural environment. It's an interesting local culture and, and mix of migrants. Um, it has a good tourist infrastructure. It's great for a weekend trip from Beijing. Uh, the sun sets at 8 p.m., so... Um, uh, come come visit me in Dali. Uh, and then connected to that, I'm also going to recommend Yunnan Cuisine, uh, which I, I believe that Yunnan ham and mushrooms got a shout-out on Seneca recently, and I just wanted yeah. to take the opportunity to expand that um, to include all of Yunnan cuisine, which I find very eclectic uh, and wonderful uh, dishes like uh, stir-fried flowers. Uh, they have grilled cheese. Uh, lichen and moss. That, that sheep's milk cheese. I love that stuff. Oh my God. Yep, Rubing, rushan. Uh, interesting greens. Uh, of course, uh, so many flavorsome mushrooms, uh, which Stephanie also wrote an excellent piece on. Uh, cured ham. I've, I've started curing my own ham now. And uh, araquai <laughs> which is sort of uh, best described as sticky rice tortilla. Uh, dai food. Uh, it's the only province really to have its own coffee. Uh, excellent mijos. Um, and uh, I, I think that, I hope that <coughs> Yunnan food is, is becoming freshly uh, trendy abroad. I, I think it's, uh, I don't know why the world collectively decided 20 years ago that Sichuan food was the only cool food in China. I, 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 I enjoy <laughs> Sichuan food, but um, given the choice, I think I would prefer uh, not to have a tummy full of oil and, uh, and a mouth dead by a, a chemical numbing agent. So I think that just Yunnan food is something to to explore.
2: Alec, you got to oh, watch fantastic. out. There's yeah. going to be thousands descending on Dali now, disrupting the peace.
0: Oh, no, cut uh,
1: that out. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing I'm to to heading hear. over there as soon as I get out. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm hopefully going to make it over there this summer. Uh, God willing, inshallah, I, I, will, I will. I'm getting vaccinated on, on Saturday, my first shot. So I'm oh, very, very, uh, very excited about that. Um, so, yeah, okay, my recommendation for uh, this week is the excellent series Beijing Lights from the Spittoon Collective, which is a fantastic literary magazine out of Beijing. Uh, Beijing Lights is an ongoing series of interviews that are done mainly with people I guess you would call subalterns. Um, they're really marginalized or often overlooked people, um, sometimes homeless people, work, people working you know, as security guards, really menial kinds of jobs. Uh, Often people who are from, you know, outside of the capital. Uh, They're published as first-person accounts written by a writer named Huang Chengkuang. Last month, we started syndicating these on SubChina, and they're excellent. I'm going to start including them in China stories because um, I think they're they're really, really good. Uh, Looking for, always looking for good readers. And yeah, I might put the call out. If you are somebody who, if you have, if you own a good microphone and you have a quiet room and a nice reading voice, and you can pronounce Chinese words correctly. You know, Drop me a line. Let me know if you want to do some China Stories readings. I'd be really thrilled. All right. Alex, Stephanie, that was so much fun. Thank you. I, I feel like I, I know uh, my own children a little better now.
2: <laughs> really enjoyed it, Kaiser. Thanks. Thank
1: you. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Stephanie. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at sinica at com follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Sinica Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.